Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Episode 8. Velvine found himself on Dartmouth Park Hill, and it was exceptionally hairy, and this hair, to make matters worse, was curly, which meant every strand tried to wrap itself around his legs as he tried to force a path through. Even worse was the state of the trolley wheels, almost immobile because of hair wrapped around their axles. This hair he had to cut off with his penknife every ten minutes. It took him two hours to progress half a mile down the hill, by which time the sun was setting and he seethed with frustration. But not one person did he see outdoors. Plenty of people leaning out of open windows, one or two on their roofs, but none in the streets. Hairy London had shut down. He was a long way from Bedwood's house, alone and fatigued. He did not know what to do. But then he saw a boy sitting on a wall up ahead where Brecknock Road began, and beyond the boy the red and white lamps of Tufnell Park Underground Station. Laird, he called out, is the underground running? Not this one, sir, the boy replied. I hear Hampstead Station's open. Well, that's too far away, Velvine said. He looked at the boy. What are you doing here? I ain't got nowhere to go. Whatever do you mean? Go to your house. I expect your parents are worried about you. The boy shrugged. I ain't got no parents. No parents? But how were you born? The boy frowned. I mean, sir, they're dead. I come from the charnel house. The what-what? The Johnny Cab, the black fit-up on Pentonville Road. Velvine still had no idea what the boy meant. What is your name? Why are you so far away from Islington? Tycho Matchmaker, sir. I was running away. Then he went all hairy and I got stuck. Velvine found himself more confused now than annoyed. Where do you sleep and take your meals, Tycho? The Johnny Cab. But I don't want to go back. They beat me. Beat you? At games and the like, eh? With sticks, if I don't work hard enough. You mean, Velvine said, they strike you? Yes, sir, it hurts. Although I thought Mr Gladstone was going to help us kids. Despite himself, Velvine smiled. He knew nothing about children, but he did know that this one grasped enough about the world to bring Gladstone into the conversation. I suspect he was too busy dealing with the Irish, he replied. Well, Tycho, there is nothing I can do for you, but I'm heading south, so I will protect you as far as I can along the way. But I don't want to go back, sir. There's five hundred boys in my dorm, and we all hate the masters, every one of us. Five hundred? How is it possible in one house? They work us day and night. It's the law, Tycho shrugged. They say it's worse in Hindu. I heard they make a tiny room in Calcutta and stuffed. Yes, yes, that's quite enough talk of Hindu, Velvine said. I am afraid, Tycho, that I find your story impossible to believe, so I'm going to accompany you to this Johnny Cab of yours and take a look. 
And if conditions are half as bad as you claim, I shall take action, stiff action. Do we have a deal? Suppose so, Tycho muttered. Got any food, sir? I ain't eaten for two days. Uh, two... They feed us every other evening. What's that statue you got, sir? Velvine glanced back at the clay figure. Well, I don't really... He paused. Now that he looked again, he noticed the figure had changed, its legs less lumpy, its arms more slender and longer. He took a step back and squinted, but the light was too poor to be certain. They began forging a path down Brecknock Road. Tycho said, Why don't you sell it, sir? Then we could buy us some grub. Grub? Nosh. Nosh? You're not from around here, are you, sir? Velvine replied. No, I live in Belgravia. Is that on a continent? Velvine sighed. He could hardly believe that children were quite so inquisitive, quite so forward and quite so hungry. But though he disbelieved Tycho about the conditions of his house, there was something in the boy's direct honesty that tugged at the back of his mind. Belgravia, it had to be said, was a district of distinction, and it could be argued that none of the orchard tides had experienced all the regions of London, and one did hear stories of deprivation on occasion when they were reported in the back pages of the Times. Tycho, do you read at all? Yes, sir. I steal as many newspapers as I can. The Filth Gazette, mostly. If I lived abroad like you, I'd steal the Times. I do not live abroad, Belvine said, with no little exasperation. But you believe in God, eh? No, sir. Only fools believe in God. Appalled, Velvine stopped, grabbed the boy by the ear and said, What did you say? Tycho seemed unaffected by the rough treatment. Only fools, sir. I'm an agnostician. I don't think you can prove anything beyond doubt. You are parroting, Velvine cried. You heard somebody say that, and you are repeating it to me. That's right, sir, but I understand what it means. Velvine flung Tycho to the ground. But then he looked at the lad and found himself shocked at the violent treatment he had meted out, which must be no better than that of the masters who beat boys with sticks. He took a step back. He shook his head. He did not know what was happening to him. Tycho, he muttered. I must apologise. I'm truly sorry. You rather caught me off guard, eh? Stand up, lad, and we shall walk on to Islington. At the very least, I shall get you to safety tonight. Safer on the streets than in the Johnny cab, sir. Velvine found himself silenced. There was no arguing with the boy. His honesty was like a shield against which blandishments had no effect. Follow me anyway, he said, and we shall see what we shall see. You sure you haven't got any food? I feel sick now. An unfamiliar sensation settled upon Belvine. It was, he realised, guilt. A few hundred yards down the road, Velvine saw a chips and fishes bar but it was shut because of the hairy situation. With the holster of his knife, he rapped on the door until a window opened above the bar and a man leaned out. What you want? 
Can't you see we're closed? My good man, Velvine replied, I will give you six silver spongs for two portions of your finest. Be right down, sir. Ten minutes later, they were eating out of yesterday's newspapers. Tycho said, Do we have to go to the Johnny Cab? Why don't you believe me? Your story sounds too incredible to be true, Velvine replied. I've never been to this district of London before, let alone to Islington. So this is something of a new experience for me. I'm hoping you were lying. Tycho shrugged. It's all true, he said. Wish it weren't. They carried on through light blonde hair down York Way, arriving halfway through the night at Pentonville Road. Exhausted, they found a doorway choked with soft brown hair, in which they slept like dormice in a nest. Dawn, Velvine woke up, alerted by a noise. A small hand rummaged inside his rucksack. He reached out and grabbed it. You do not want to be a thief, he said. Believe me, it causes problems. Sorry, sir, I wasn't going to make anything. Is that so, eh? Tycho shrugged. I'm going to lick the fish grease off my fingers for breakfast, he said. Velvine stood up, then pulled Tycho to his feet. Come along. This morning we shall see what this house of yours is really like. They made their way as best they could along Pentonville Road, until Tycho stopped by a postbox and with a trembling arm pointed. There it is, sir. Please don't let's get any nearer. I cannot see it well enough from here. Velvine walked on. The building was tall and black, with high walls in which small windows twinkled. Rotting brown doors pierced the lower sections, and by one a sallow-faced, burly man stood. He wore the dirtiest clothes Velvine had ever seen. Good morning to you, Velvine said. The man stared at him, silent, brooding. Is the name Tycho Matchmaker known to you? At once, the man stood alert. Yes, it bleeding is. Where is the runt? Well, the man grabbed him by the collar and slammed him against the wall. <coughs> Taken by surprise, Velvine felt the breath expelled from his chest. Where is he? The man demanded. Velvine glanced back at the postbox, hardly able to breathe. The man dropped him and charged through street hair to the postbox, grabbing Tycho from his hiding place. Tycho shouted and struggled, but he was caught. Velvine, still shocked, found himself frozen, unable to act. This was all too strange, too alien. He felt lost. But when the man closed, he stepped in front of him and said, Is there really any need to be quite so harsh? The man struck him in the face, then moved on, throwing Tycho as if he was a bag of corn into the building. What are you going to do with him? Velvine asked. Flail him until he's one inch from croaking. But what is the point? He's only an innocent boy. Don't worry, if he dies, we've got an inexhaustible supply of them. Inexhaustible? It's cool London town. Now get your carcass out of my sight. The man turned around and slammed the door. And Velvine, for all his experience in foreign fields, for all his courage and medals, could not go inside the building to rescue Tycho. Then he heard the sound of a whip cracking and screams. (laughs) 
The Blutblitzen Zeppelin Corporation in Swiss Cottage covered a large area and was surrounded by a brick wall 15 feet high. Cornucope was not concerned by this. The site had once been a brick factory. But he was concerned by the noise of guard dogs barking inside the site and by the six-foot-six guard standing amidst the thick blonde hair beside the main entrance. Good morning, he said. He checked his chronoplast. Good afternoon. I am Cornucope Weatherby, the guard said nothing. His face remained immobile. He stared. And I would like to see the Count von Flugzeug. The Count receives no visitors from the public. Look here, my good man. Von Flugzeug is a personal friend and will be angry if he discovers you've impeded me. So let me in, now. Something in Cornucope's manner made the guard wilt. Scowling, he took from the Bakelite oyster at his side a small red breast into which he spoke. Man called be here to see you. All right, let him in. Right at once, sir. Cornucope glanced at his wife and raised his eyebrows in mock outrage. Eustacia tried to stop herself laughing. Cornucope had not been inside the site for a year. It had changed. The place was full of zeppelins being constructed, a hundred or more, some almost ready, their canvas skins being painted black, white and red, others mere frameworks of wicker and willow. Cornucope was astonished, having never seen more than ten zeppelins at any one time, and suddenly he felt the clammy hand disquiet upon him. A dearest one, he said. This is not as it used to be. Keep your eyes and ears alert for suspicious activity. I shall utilize my friendship with the Count and his associates to calm any anxiety they may feel at our presence. They are preparing for something, Eustacia replied in her most matter-of-fact voice. He stopped walking and turned to face her. You think so? She nodded, then turned to gesture at an approaching man, to whom she said... Namaste, when he closed. And greetings to both, the man said. It was Baron Langson, who was known to Cornucope. Langson, he said, it is jolly good to see you. I came here to have a word with the Count. Yeah, very good, but he is busy, Langson replied. You won't be allowed to linger for longer. Uh, just a few minutes should be enough, Cornucope said, affecting a nonchalant manner. You know me, he added. Never one to linger, ever. Eustacia put her fingers to her lips and shook her head as Langsome turned to lead them away. Cornucope said nothing more. You have been indulging in Episode 8 of Hairy London by Stephen Palmer, narrated by R.D. Watson.